As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good, because every year dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them, but with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly, so get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today, the issue is a bit close to me personally. The subject we're going to talk about today is Jews and cannabis. And what prompted this was not that I just suddenly discovered I'm Jewish. I've been Jewish all my life, as many of your listeners hear the references I make from time to time. But there was an exhibit recently in New York that's actually playing for the rest of the year on the subject Jews and cannabis. It's at a famous institute called YIVO, the Yiddish Institute for Jewish Research, which is part of a broader umbrella organization called the Center for Jewish History which is committed to the preservation and study of the history and culture of East European Jewry. But a key academic advisor and the head of their exhibitions, Eddie Portnoy, has always been sort of drawn to looking at the deviant side of things. And he came up with this idea of doing an exhibit on Jews and cannabis, which I just went to in May, which was fascinating. Place was packed. And so, Eddie, thank you for joining me on Psychoactive. Thanks for having me, Ethan. So, Eddie, what was it that prompted you to, you know, do Jews and Cannabis? Well, one of the odd things was a few years ago, I happened to see online a really kind of beautifully sculpted glass bong in the shape of a menorah for the holiday of Hanukkah. And I thought, you know, this is really kind of an unusual thing. It's this confluence of cannabis culture and Jewish culture. And I thought to myself, you know, I work at a historical research institute that has a really enormous archive with something like 24 million objects and artifacts and documents. And I thought, you know, we've been collecting Jewish material culture for almost 100 years. This menorah bong is something that's representative of Jewish material culture. This should be in our collection. And so I contacted the company, Grav, that makes it. And I told them what I just told you, that I work at a historical research institute that has this huge archive. And I asked if they would donate it to the archives. And they were very receptive. They said, sure. And they, the following week, it was in my office. And as it sat on my desk, I thought to myself, well, the first thing I thought was, why would anyone smoke eight bowls of weed at a time? But the second thing I thought was, 
could I feasibly make an exhibit on Jews and cannabis? You know, could this, could this, is this something that I could actually create? Is, are there more items like this? You know, what's the history of this? And I began to do a bit of research. And sure enough, I came up with really much more than I would ever need to create an exhibit. And we waited until COVID was a little bit calmer to open it, but it opened. And as you said, the place was packed and it's gotten a really great reception so far. Yeah. Well, you know, when looking at your background and what you've written and done in the past, I feel a certain kinship with you. You know, when I was doing my own PhD in politics, you know, decades ago, and I was always drawn to the kind of deviant side of things. I was curious about deviance and about even thinking about deviance, not just in a sociological context, but a political context and even in a global context. And my sense is that you also have that history. I mean, the book you wrote was called, I think, Bad Rabbi. Tell us a little bit about that to provide some broader context of this. Right. So Bad Rabbi, the full title is Bad Rabbi and Other Strange But True Stories from the Yiddish Press. This book contains a wide variety of different stories, most of them culled from old Yiddish newspapers. And one of the reasons I began doing this was when I was doing research for my dissertation, which was on cartoons of the Yiddish press, I had to read the Yiddish press extensively. And I kept coming across really unusual articles about, I guess, what you'd call Jews in trouble, but trouble of their own making, sort of bunglers and screw-ups and you know criminals and people involved in violent situations. And some of them were really hilarious. Some of them were tragic. Some are tragicomic. But I sort of found this trove of incredibly fascinating stories about Jews, mostly from the early 20th century. And they weren't the typical things you thought of when you thought of you know Yiddish-speaking Jews. There are riots and murders and psychics and all kinds of fights. There are knockdown, drag out battles during divorce proceedings in rabbinical courts. It's almost as if it's a kind of Yiddish Jerry Springer show. And when I was in grad school and deeply studying the Jews of this era, I never came across material like this. But yet, in Yiddish newspapers, this kind of material was legion. And it really fascinated me. And so I compiled a fair amount of it and produced this book. Mm -hmm. Well, I saw, I think, also some of the other exhibits, maybe the ones that you've curated there. There's one called Fight Club about the Jewish boxers and how many Jewish champions there were in boxing. There were Jews in space, Jews in comedy and Renaissance literature, Jew face, which was kind of the variant of blackface minstrelly involving Jewish and Jewish theater. I mean, so it sounds like there's a number of ones where you've kind of been drawn to looking at the sort of surprising ways in which Jews play a role in which you would not expect them to be playing. Right. That's basically my MO. I look for aspects of Jewish life that people really haven't, scholars or really anyone else hasn't really touched on a great deal. And uh, often this has to do with deviance. And some of it winds up being, you know, really fascinating. And I could just add that, you know, one interesting person who's connected to cannabis is Howard Becker, who's one of the fathers of deviant studies in sociology. And, you know, he wrote one of the early academic articles in the early 1950s on cannabis use. Howard Becker's, I think he wrote Becoming a Marijuana User, where he talked about what it means to learn how to be high. I mean, Howard Becker's still in his 90s. He became a very famous sociologist, but no, he was an early, really leader in there. Now, one of the things you put in the exhibit is you go back to the period, and it's a really very rich period, of the 1960s and 70s, when you have both the counterculture as well as the Jewish researchers and scientists who are basically, you know, advocating for marijuana reform in the very early stages of the first wave of marijuana reform and who are disproportionately Jewish at that time. Now, I'll say there was one name in the exhibit, I think, that I did not recognize. I think it was Walter Bromberg. Yeah, Walter Bromberg, who was a uh, psychiatrist you know, working in the 1930s at Bellevue Hospital. And he did some of the first research on marijuana smokers who had been brought in to his ward. And he produced, I think, his first article in 1934. And what he found was really in opposition to what was happening in the press, where marijuana was perceived as you know something that caused people to engage in violence or made them psychotic in some way. He found that it didn't do that at all. His findings showed that marijuana was not particularly detrimental, at least not in the same way as, you know, opium or mm -hmm. morphine. 
or I have, you know, even alcohol. Right. And his recommendations, I think, shaped the LaGuardia Commission, which was one of right. the early governmental commissions in the U.S. to come out basically advocating for some form of decriminalization of cannabis back in the 30s and headed up or appointed by a mayor, Fiero LaGuardia, Italian name, but half Jewish. Right, right. Yeah. Yiddish speaking Italian mayor. I'll tell you, there was a moment I remember in 1987, and I had just started teaching at Princeton and been asked to teach a course on drug policy. And it gave me an opportunity to invite some of the more prominent figures in. And I remember that's how I met Andrew Weil, who was actually my very first guest on Psychoactive almost a year or so ago. And I'm sitting there having dinner with Andy, and he says, Ethan, you ever wonder or maybe worry about how many Jews are involved? And we weren't just talking about cannabis, but broader drug policy reform. Because, you know, it was him. Then there was Arnold Treback, who had just co-created the Drug Policy Foundation to advocate against the drug war. But then you had Lester Grinspoon at Harvard Medical School and Norman Zinberg at Harvard Medical School. And you had Ed Brecker, who had written the, the Editors of Consumers Report, which is a breakthrough book challenging the major drug war. John Kaplan, a Stanford law professor who, together with Grinspoon, wrote a couple of the key books in the early 70s, basically advocating for some reform. And so it raises the interesting question of, was there ever a sense of marijuana legalization or marijuana being something of a Jewish conspiracy? <laughs> Some people thought so. You know, one of those people being Richard Nixon. Well, now that you mentioned <laughs> Nixon, I mean, let's just go to the famous clip of his. He's talking to H.R. Haldeman, his aide, and he's complaining about marijuana and Jews. So just in case you couldn't make out what Nixon was saying there, he says, you know, it's a funny thing. Every one of the bastards that are out for legalizing marijuana is Jewish. What the Christ is the matter with the Jews, Bob, he says to Bob Haldeman. What's the matter with them? I suppose it's because most of them are psychiatrists. So, Eddie, what's your take on that Nixon quote? Right. So on the one hand, it's hilarious. And on the other hand, it's terrible because, you know, it obviously reveals Nixon's anti-Semitism and his obvious penchant for conspiracy theory. But what's actually happening here is this quote was recorded in the Oval Office on his secret recording apparatus on, I believe, May 26th, 1971. And he was about to officially launch his drug war. And Lester Grinspoon's book, Reconsidering Marijuana, had come out a few weeks earlier. And this was a book written by a Harvard University psychiatry professor, published by Harvard University Press. It's clearly something that's respected and legitimate. And the end result is that marijuana is not detrimental. It's even something that should be legalized. And obviously, this is backed up by years of research. And so Nixon is furious because he's about to launch the drug war and this very obviously Jewish psychiatrist comes out with this book that's going to be problematic for him. And it's connected to this in some way is the other people who are involved in legalization and some of the people who Nixon is also trying to get at with the drug war are the yippies, who are also certainly anyone can join the yippies and probably most of, you know, I don't think that there was any kind of official membership. So the yippies was a political organization. Some people call them the Groucho Marxists. They were this kind of radical left-wing political group who was very performative. Some of the things they did, and if anyone saw the recent Chicago 7 movie, the Chicago 7 are essentially the founders of the Yippies. And they would go into the gallery of the New York Stock Exchange and in the middle of trading, throw out hundreds of dollar bills. And the traders would all go running to grab the dollar bills. And it was obviously meant to embarrass them. They also did things like threaten to spike the water system of Chicago with LSD during the 1968 Democratic Convention. They attempted to levitate the Pentagon. They were uh -huh. engaged in all kinds of funny, performative activities. But one of the interesting things that I actually didn't know about the Yippies until I started doing research on this was that marijuana legalization was central to their political platform. And in fact, their official flag, which is a black flag with a red star, also has a marijuana leaf embossed on it. And if you read their newspapers, among them the Yipster Times or Overthrow, they're full of articles about legalization and the importance of legalization. So Nixon hated these people. And obviously they hated Nixon as well. And so they were always at each other's throats. But one way that Nixon could harm them was by 
instituting a drug war in which they would wind up in jail. Mm -hmm. And so that was part and parcel of the drug wars, put users in jail mm -hmm. and use resources for that instead of other possibly more useful right. matters. And it just so happens that all five of the founders of the Yippies were Jewish. I mean, Abby Hoffman right. and his wife, Anita, and Jerry right. Rubin, who were both in the trial of Chicago 7, and Nancy Kershan and Paul Krasner. So once again, none of them probably all that connected in their adult lives to their Judaism, but nonetheless organizing this kind of anarchistic group. And then, of course, you had Allen Ginsberg, right? The famous poet. Right. right. Yeah. So Ginsberg, he was actually one of really the early adopters of legalization as a platform in 1964. He and Ed Sanders of the Fugs, if anyone remembers the Fugs, this 1960s band, did really interesting stuff. Actually did some Yiddish songs. So they, they also had a Yiddish connection. But Alan Ginsberg and Ed Sanders founded Limar or Legalize Marijuana in New York and in late 1964 began organizing public protests in support of marijuana legalization. These were really, I believe, the first public protests in support of legalization. He also wrote articles, I think in The Atlantic, promoting legalization. He was very active in this regard. And I guess it's somewhat unusual to have a literary figure do this. But one interesting thing here is the connection he makes between generations. So one interesting thing about Ginsburg is, as I understand it, he began to use cannabis as a result of his connection with the jazz scene. Jazz musicians had been using cannabis since the 20s. And he's also this link between the jazz scene and the popularization of cannabis and the 1960s counterculture, which he's also involved in. And so that makes him a kind of unusual figure in that regard. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's also something else because you go back to the 30s, right, when you had both very common marijuana use among jazz musicians and you also had beginnings of reefer madness with Harry Anslinger, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and others. But I mean, that was a point where you had many musicians, right, who had reefer songs and many of them didn't even have lyrics. But I think that you had Fats Waller and Duke Ellington and Gene Krupa. But then you had a Jewish guy like Benny Goodman, the famous clarinetist, who had his song Texas Tea Party. And then the one who perhaps made the greatest connection here was Mez Mezro, a clarinetist, among other things, who did a song, Sending the Viper, but who had other connections. So just tell us a little bit about Mez Mezro. Right. So Mez Mezro was born in Chicago, learned to play saxophone in reform school. He was, you know, admittedly not a great kid, but learning to play saxophone kind of saved him. He got into the jazz scene in Chicago, played with a number of greats. And as a jazz musician, he began using cannabis because apparently a lot of people were doing it. And he, while in Chicago, made a connection with a particular Mexican dealer who apparently had higher quality marijuana than others. In the late 20s, he moves to New York to become part of the Harlem jazz scene. And he's not really able to support himself. So because he has this Mexican connection, he begins selling marijuana. And apparently he becomes one of the most popular figures in Harlem because of this. He becomes Louis Armstrong's personal dealer. Louis Armstrong was a frequent user. He called it Muggles, which he references in a number of his songs. And as you said, Mez Mesro gets name dropped in a lot of songs. In fact, in Harlem of the 1930s, marijuana was known as Mez. And he used to sell these pre-rolls that everyone called Mez Rolls. And he was Albert Goldman, who's this journalist and scholar and well-known biographer of people like John Lennon and Lenny Bruce and Elvis. He wrote a history of marijuana in America that came out in the late 70s. And he wrote that Mesro was really one of the most seminal figures in the popularization of cannabis in the United States. And yet, to a certain degree, he's been forgotten in this regard, you know, with the exception of mentioned in these books. What's interesting here is he's this Jewish kid from Chicago who gets involved in the jazz scene, gets involved with cannabis use and sales in New York. And then Allen Ginsberg winds up as a fan of jazz, going to shows, starts smoking cannabis because of that. And then he becomes this link to the counterculture and the ultimate large-scale popularization of marijuana use as part of this growing youth culture. Mm-hmm him being the marijuana dealer supplier for the most famous marijuana user in American history, which was Louis Armstrong. You know, right. Louis Armstrong, clearly not a black man, a Baptist, I think, but somebody who wore a Star of David all his adult life, I think, because he had a very close relationship with a Jewish family when he was a kid. Right. And he saw that family as having kind of enabled him to help him become who he was, not least by helping him buy his first trumpet when he was very younger. Yeah. So you get the counterculture from the 30s and the jazz era, and then going 
going into the 60s. And then in the exhibit, uh, you mentioned, I think, some of the musicians, famous Jewish musicians, although they were, may not have been known for being famous because they were Jewish. But one, I think, was Shel Silverstein, right? Who right. was a writer and a poet, a cartoonist, songwriter, playwright. I think he was most famous for children's books like The Giving Tree and A Light in the right. Attic. And he also wrote that Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue. But what was his contribution to marijuana songology? Right. So Shel Silverstein wrote, I got stoned and I missed it. I got stoned and I missed it. I got stoned and I missed it. It's a song about someone who gets high and then misses out on some things. So it's a sort of comic song about, you know, what happens to you if you get too high. So Phil Oaks wrote, you can't get stoned enough. And so this is obviously a popular thematic in the 1960s. All of these, you know, folk singers and rock stars would come to sing songs about cannabis in some way. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot, fast, and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, everyone. This is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss. A common mistake that a lot of people do. They use fabric softener when it's not so great for your clothes. Should we never be using fabric softener? No, you should not ever be using fabric softener. It leaves a deposit on our clothes, which is also left in the machine. And it also makes the clothes highly flammable. Wait, what? (laughs) Yes. What you want to do instead is just use a quarter cup of vinegar. And that'll make them softer? That'll make them softer. And if you wanted some kind of scent, you can use essential oils. Wow, wow, wow. Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. 
Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. Now, the most famous song, I think, that's associated with marijuana, but may not actually have been about marijuana, was by a guy named Bob Zimmerman, who became Bob Dylan, right? Right. Rainy Day Woman. Yeah. Everybody must get stoned. Yeah, Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, and everybody must get stoned. But was that actually about getting high? Right. So he claims it's not. He claims it's about getting stoned in the biblical sense of people stoning you if you've done something wrong. But he's obviously referencing getting stoned, you know, getting high. There's no question that that's the reference. And that's clearly what made the song funny and popular, even though he's evidently talking about something else. Dylan also famously introduced the Beatles to marijuana and by doing so may have changed the course of music history. Mm -hmm. Although interesting, right? Ringo Starr from the Beatles, I think at one point writes an anti-marijuana song. And I was actually talking, Eddie, to a Steve Bloom, you know, who's been a marijuana journalist for decades at High Times. Now he has Celeb Stoner. And he pointed me to another song called The Pot Smokers Song by Neil Diamond in 1968. Do you know about this? I didn't know about that. That sounds great. I'll tell you, it's an anti-marijuana song. I think Neil Diamond had visited Phoenix House, the uh, drug treatment facility, abstinence-only drug treatment facility, and headed by Mitch Rosenthal, also Jewish and a notorious kind of drug warrior. And Neil Diamond writes this terrible song, the pot smoker's song, all anti-marijuana, all equating it with heroin. And then years later, he basically recants. He says that writing that song almost destroyed his career. He realized there was a difference between marijuana and heroin. So, uh, yeah, a different twist on the marijuana and songs aspect to all of this stuff. Wow, that's so fascinating. I guess it's not as big of a hit as Sweet Caroline. No, no, that's right. That's right. Exactly. Lucky for him. Lucky right. for him. But then if you jump forward, Amy Winehouse, right? Who right. Who, you know, dies tragically in her mid to late 20s. 27. You know, 27 and writes with the rehab song. But she has another song, Addicted. It's clearly something she enjoys. That's the gist of the lyric. Yeah. Yeah, I think the key was when you smoke all my weed, man, you got to call the green man. And then separately, there is in the Jewish music world of klezmer music. Uh, you introduced me to something there I had, knew nothing about. Right. This is a song by the Klezmatics. Lyrics are written by Michael Wex. It's Shir Lemizmor Lechanef, and it's the reefer song in Yiddish. <laughs> In Yiddish, there are there are a fair number of drinking songs, and the Klezmatics is a band who helped revive klezmer music, which is uh, Jewish traditional Eastern European music that you know most often gets played at weddings and sort of celebratory events. They decided that they wanted to put out an album of drinking songs, and they felt that they needed to update their material and have a song about smoking weed. So they they created this Yiddish reefer song, and I believe it's the only song in Yiddish about smoking cannabis. Mm-hmm. One of the points you made at the uh, opening of the exhibit, and it was this part of the exhibit from which I learned the most, was that in some respects, when you look at the history of Jews and cannabis, there's relatively little, almost nothing in terms of the history of Jews in Europe, in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, Yiddish Europe, Christian Europe, that it was sort of absent that. And if you really want to look at the history of Jews and cannabis, you have to go back maybe to the Bible or else to the role of the Jews, the Sephardic Jews, as opposed to the Ashkenazi Jews. Jews in Europe, the Sephardic Jews living in North Africa, in Egypt, in Spain, where there is more of a connection. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the origins of cannabis in the Bible and then continuing through into the Middle Ages in that part of the world. Cannabis has been around, obviously, for thousands of years. It's been in the Middle East for thousands of years. It's mentioned in the Bible and the Talmud, and the Talmud, which is a compendium of Jewish law, as well as a number of other religious texts. And in the Bible, they refer to something called kanebosem, and this is Hebrew. And it's usually translated as fragrant stock or aromatic cane. And in Exodus, for example, it's, it's used to make anointing oil. Some translators call it sweet calamus, which is 
another plant, it's not really clear that that's what it is at all. And it's also not clear that it's actually cannabis, but a number of medieval rabbis and scholars today believe that it is cannabis. And one of its roles in the Bible, in addition to being used in making anointing oil, is as part of something called the ketoret, which which is a mixture of herbs and spices that was produced to create incense that was burned in the ancient temple in Jerusalem. And the burning of incense, I should add, was an integral part of Jewish ritual. And so this kanebosem appears in this regard. And so one component of this ketoret or the incense that's burned in the temple is something called the malay ashan, or which in Hebrew means the smoke riser. And it's an element that apparently makes the smoke go directly up. And there's a 12th century Spanish rabbi who's known as Nachmanides, and his commentaries on Exodus seems to claim that this sort of mysterious element, the smoke razor, is kanebosem or cannabis. Additionally, there's the recipe for this incense is not found in the Bible. It's not found anywhere. And in fact, uh, the recipe itself was held by a particular family in Jerusalem, the Avtinas family. And they notoriously refused to tell anyone what exactly was in it. And so no one really knows. There are a number of books that claim to know what exactly is in it, but apparently no one, no one actually does know. And there is also just more evidence as to what Kanebosa may be. In the Talmud, there's a story. And the Talmud, as I said, is a compendium of Jewish law. There's a story in which Rabbi Akiva finds a boy in Jerusalem laughing and crying at the same time. And so he asks him, you know, why are you what's going on? Why are you laughing and crying in the, at the same time? And it turned out that he was in a field of the secret herb that made part of this incense. And so I think that if you're in a field of this herb that's part of this incense and you're laughing and you're crying, there's something about a type of psychoactive ingredient that may be part of that. Another aspect to this is Maimonides, who's another well-known medieval rabbi. I mean, perhaps the greatest of all the medieval era, right. right, Jewish philosophers, and he was an astronomer, he was a physician, a personal physician to the Sultan Saladin. So, I mean, really, I mean, of all the great Jewish scholars, probably the ones who Maimonides stands out. One of the best known from this era. So all of these rabbis and scholars attempt to make sense of sort of the flora and the fauna that's in the Bible. And so, of course, Maimonides, his definition of kanebosem is that it's a reddish green plant. It's used in medicine and it's imported from India. India had long been a source for cannabis. And this is more evidence that kanebosem does appear to actually be cannabis. Additionally, there was a Polish scholar named Chula Bennett who claimed that linguistically, Kanebosem came from the Scythian word, and the Scythians were a Middle Eastern tribe that preceded the Israelites, I think, by a number of thousands of years or hundreds of years. And they were known to have used cannabis in their rituals. Is it just coincidence that Kanebosem sounds so much like cannabis? It may be, but it's actually not clear. It may be coincidence, and it may be that that's where the etymology actually stems from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there is archaeological evidence also from some of the digs in Israel and Palestine looking at... Uh... Right, that's correct. So in the 1960s, archaeologists began to excavate a dig of an ancient synagogue in a town called Tel Arad, which is near the Dead Sea. And it was excavated in the 1960s, but one of the things they found that they didn't investigate was that there were two small altars in this synagogue ruin and on the tops of the altars was the burned residue of some substance. So they took it for carbon dating and for chemical analysis. And they found that one, the residue was from the third century, which is when the synagogue was apparently active. And on one of the altars was the burned residue of frankincense. And on the other altar was the burned residue of cannabis. And they found cannabinoids, found CBD, THC, CBN. And this is, you know, yet another indication that the ancient Hebrews were burning cannabis in religious ceremonies and apparently not only in the temple in Jerusalem. So what's fascinating here is and obviously with the advent of the diaspora 2000 years ago, along the way there are certain rituals that you're not, you know, either because they you, they must be performed in Jerusalem in the temple or because they got lost along the way that have just sort of disappeared from normative Jewish ceremony. And these appear to be one of them. I mean, we still on Saturday night at the end of 
the Sabbath, a ritual called Havdalah is performed, which separates the holiness of the Sabbath from the sort of secularity of the workaday week. And part of that ceremony is to smell sweet herbs. And so that may be the remnant of the use of incense in ancient times. It's not not entirely clear, but it may be. Or the ritual just disappeared entirely. But there are currently people who are trying to reintegrate cannabis use into Jewish ritual, which is, you know, something that's that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I think you're talking about there's a cannabis seder out in Oregon that a couple of Roy and Claire Kaufman organized some years. In fact, I was invited to it. I was unable to go. I was very sad, but they came out with a cannabis Haggadah and created a nonprofit called Leor, basically, I think, to you know to substitute cannabis for lettuce on the seder plate and promote consumption of cannabis as part of the Passover Pesach. Going back to the ancient stuff, you also had a couple of posters in the exhibit involving the Cairo Geniza. And just maybe explain what that was and what was found there. Right. So this isn't really ancient. It's really from the medieval period. It's from the 11th through the the 14th centuries. And you know, this is one of the things that I found in Eastern Europe and in Europe in general, you really don't find much activity. And there's a little bit, but you don't find much activity with Jews and cannabis or really many people in cannabis. I mean, there's some intellectuals who sort of explore it on a sort of a mass scale. Cannabis is available for rope making or textiles, but it's not used as, as an intoxicant at all. So when I began this research, one of the things I found was I needed to find Jews who were in an area where cannabis was used regularly. And that turned out to be the Middle East, where hashish has been a popular intoxicant for thousands of years. And so Jews who live in the Middle East, who are either Sephardim or the descendants of Spanish Jews or Mizrahim, who are considered Eastern Jews or Jews who have remained in the Middle East from the beginning, they were dispersed throughout North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula and other places generally throughout the Middle East. And uh, because hashish was was generally popular, they used it as well. You know, Jews always participate to varying degrees in the cultures in which they reside. And so because hashish was commonly used in these places, they did as well. And so generally, you don't find documentary evidence of things like hashish use. It's, you know, like trying to find documentary evidence of something someone ate, although you can sometimes find that in some ways. But there was a synagogue in Egypt called the Ben Ezra Synagogue. And most synagogues, or I would say almost all synagogues, have a, a special room called the Geniza. And what that essentially is, is a storage room for damaged documents, damaged prayer books, damaged Bibles, damaged Torahs, damaged Talmuds, things that people can no longer use. And the reason that these things need to be stored is that according to Jewish tradition, you're not allowed to just casually throw these books away because they contain the name of God. And as a result, you have to store them until you have enough to bury them in a ceremony, which is what's traditionally done. So in the Ben Ezra synagogue, beginning in the ninth century, they began throwing away the books that were damaged. And in addition to books, it turned out that for the next thousand years until the 19th century, this community threw out hundreds of thousands of documents that ranged from wedding contracts, business contracts, all kinds of literature ranging from prose to poetry to popular songs, letters, all kinds of correspondence to and from businesses, individuals, the government. And it is an incredible historical trove of documentary evidence that shows how this community lived and what they did, what their interests were, what literature they read, all kinds of fascinating aspects that we would never know otherwise had this stuff actually gotten thrown away. This Geniza was discovered in in the late 19th century by scholars who began researching it and also began taking it to wherever they lived. So there's a huge trove of it in St. Petersburg. There's a huge trove of it in Cambridge, England. There's a Trova Veda, New York, the Jewish Theological Seminary, and in a variety of other places. But there are now certain projects, scholars who focus on this, and one of them is the Princeton Geniza Project, where they've taken digitized images of a lot of these documents and uh, created databases of them. And so I looked in their database and uh, discovered that there were a number of documents that referenced hashish. And theoretically, this shouldn't be surprising. Initially, I was surprised, but then once I thought about the society in which they lived, it really made sense. And so, you know, there are things like letters to people, and I can read the text of one of them. And a lot of this material is written in Judeo-Arabic, which is a 
Jewish version of Arabic that's written in Hebrew letters and was the vernacular of the Jews uh, in this time and place. And so this letter is, it's very short and it's dated to the, from the 12th to the 13th centuries and it reads as follows. May the esteemed elder Abu al-Hassan, God preserve him, graciously obtained for the bearer with the silver that he has, 50 dirhams, imitation Samanudi silk. He also has two carats of ingot silver. Obtain hashish for me with them. After I kiss your hands and feet. Peace. This is like a 12th, 13th century Venmo. Please buy me wheat. You know, here's money. Please buy me wheat. Which shouldn't come as a surprise. But you know, when people think about ancient or medieval societies and the way that people live, there's a, you know, there's a certain sensibility or certain stereotypes that people have. And hashish usage is not is generally not one of them. Like I never learned about Jews using hashish in Hebrew school. If I did, I might have stayed in Hebrew school. <laughs> but certain things get canonized and this is not one of them. There are a number of works by a particular writer that were found, and he's thought to have lived in Mamluk-ruled Egypt uh, around 1300, around the year 1300, and he calls himself Nasir the Hebrew Literature. They think he's kind of like a popular bard. He sings his songs at weddings and in the marketplace and in other you know, sort of popular events. And a number of his songs were found in the Geniza, and one of them is called Wine, My Religion. And it's basically a wine versus hashish battle song. It's like a rap battle, you know, between wine and hashish. Like again, this is not something you necessarily expect from the 14th century written in Judeo-Arabic found in a synagogue waste bin. But one of the things he does is he, Nasir really likes wine. He loves wine and he really dislikes hashish and the people that use it. And so in the song he talks about how hashish has a way of scrambling your brain. People that use it, they eat everything in sight, their eyes turn all red, they slack off at work. These are the same stereotypes that people discuss today, but yet you have this early 14th century reference to it in Judeo-Arabic that in consideration of Jewish documents that people dig out of archives, this is not something that gets a lot of play in the scholarly world. So for me, this is really kind of a fascinating reference. I mean, obviously, Nasir doesn't like hashish, but it clearly references Jews who do. And there were quite clearly Jews who were using it in 14th century Egypt and doubtlessly all over North Africa and the Middle East because it was just commonly used. In the exhibit, there are a number of other references to this kind of usage as well. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. We're back with season two of the podcast, which means more opportunities to glow up and become a more responsible and better adult, one life lesson at a time. And let me just tell you, this show is just as much for us as it is for you. So let's figure this stuff out together. This season, we're going to talk about whether or not we're financially and emotionally ready for dog ownership. We're going to figure out the benefits of a high-yield savings account. And what exactly are the duties of being a member of the wedding party? All that, plus so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. 
you know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. You have another part of the exhibit where you briefly mentioned this tradition in Judaism of gematria or numerology, right, where letters have numerical values. And for many people, they most familiar with this is that typically if you see Jews wearing anything that's kind of Jewish oriented around their neck on a necklace, it might be the Star of David. Or the other thing will be the high, the letter right. Chet and Yud, right? And the Chet is eight and Yud is 10, that's 18, and that means life. Right. But you had something there about the possible uh, numerology around 14. 20. Right. So gematria or, or Hebrew numerology, every Hebrew letter is accorded a numeric value. And this is most prominently used in, in Kabbalah. And what they do is they take these numbers and they create words out of them, or they take words and they add up their numeric value and they create new words or phrases or things like that. Using this system, the number 420 turns into the word ashan, which is smoke in Hebrew. It turns into a lot of other words as well. But this was useful for us because we had this really kind of, we had this brilliant artist, Steve Marcus, make this amazing poster that, you know, has 420 at the top and the word Ashan at the bottom and a plume of smoke creating the number 420. And also coincidentally, it said that the kids initially came up with 420, which is apparently the time they used to leave school and go get high, as a code word for that, was a group of mostly Jewish kids who called themselves the Waldos. And they were, you know, somewhere in Northern California. And this is obviously a coincidence, but it's a good coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because when you think about that strand of Judaism, Hasidic Judaism, a real kind of more spiritually oriented Judaism in a way, and one where there's more drinking and dancing, in addition to all of the scholarship you see with other elements of Judaism, but and with the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of that some hundreds of years ago, you would think that there would have been cannabis associated with that, but I guess simply because it just wasn't around in that part right. of the world where Jews were living in Central and Eastern Europe, they just didn't know about it, they didn't have access to it or anything like that, right? Right. There is an author whose name is Yosef Leib Needleman, who wrote a book called Cannabis Hasidus. And one of the things that he argues is that all of the early Hasidic masters smoked pipes. And they were known to reach heights of ecstasy after smoking their pipes. So his claim is that they possibly were smoking cannabis, although it's not clear that historically it was actually available. But you never know. It's never mentioned explicitly anywhere, but it's still a fascinating idea. What's interesting today is that because cannabis is now legal in more places than it had been, there are Hasidim and other Orthodox Jews who are now using cannabis. Certainly they were using it before sort of under the radar. But three years ago, I was in Medjibuj, which is a town in Ukraine where the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, is buried. And 
when we arrived there at the cemetery, the first thing we saw was a group of Hasidim sharing a joint. And so that was not expected, but also to a certain degree, I guess, not completely unexpected. And it's really interesting because you see now, I mean, there's videos on YouTube of these hyper-Orthodox, 90-year-old, you know, Orthodox rabbis blessing medical marijuana. And I know that in my own interactions with some of the uh, Lubavitcher, the Hasidic community in Brooklyn, I can see there's a ease around marijuana. It seems to be that even though, I guess, in Orthodox Judaism, it's not treated the same as alcohol, there's a sense in which there seems to be a greater toleration of it. And maybe not just for medical, but even sometimes outside the medical. But what's your perspective on this? Right. I think definitely for medical. And, you know, since it's become legal, especially in New York, I think you'll find that it will become a regular feature of theirs and many other people's lives. And one of the reasons is that there's a, a ruling or a law in Judaism called Dina Malchuta Dina, which means the law of the land is the law. And what that means is that if something is illegal in wherever you live, it's also illegal for you as a Jew. And if it's permitted, it's also permitted to you as a Jew. I mean, obviously something like bacon is not going to be permitted, but because cannabis is available as a medication and as something recreational, this is something that you'll find Orthodox Jews using it just like everyone else does. Yeah. You know, I've oftentimes wondered about when tobacco enters Europe in the 1600s and then just sort of takes over Europe during the 17th century, et cetera. I wonder how the Jewish scholars and rabbis dealt with that at the time and whether it was something like marijuana, where it's initially looked down upon or prohibited. And then depending upon what the broader society says about about its legality that shapes them. But do you have any idea about how to, how tobacco? I don't, but it's a great question. I don't actually know, but tobacco, especially among Hasidim, became extremely popular. Obviously, throughout Europe, it was like it spread like wildfire. You know, everyone smoked. It was extremely common. It was also common, especially I mentioned earlier that all the early Hasidic masters smoked pipes. And they also did snuff was also extremely popular there as well. So using tobacco in a variety of ways was very common. I don't know if initially rabbis looked at it as scants or not, but if it was legal and wasn't perceived as harmful, then it was okay and certainly acceptable for use. Although you can't smoke on Shabbos. On Shabbat, of course. Right. Well, I mean, most of your exhibit folks on the U.S., but obviously there's this part about Israel. And Israel, you know, in recent decades really became the epicenter of medical marijuana research. And you have a little part there about Raphael Meshulam, sort of the godfather of marijuana research. So tell us about your interactions with him. Right. So Raphael Meshulam is in his 90s. I think he's still doing research. And as you said, he's the godfather of cannabis research. He was a young chemist. He got a PhD in chemistry from uh, the Weizmann Institute. And when he started his career, he realized that he was in a small country and he had a small research budget. And that if he wanted to make a mark in his field, he would have to engage in research on a topic that was not typically researched in big countries with big institutions that had big research budgets. And he happened to read about hashish arrests in the newspapers. And he thought, you know, this is maybe a possibility for something to work on. So he contacted the police and he asked them if he, he told them that he was a chemist, you know, working at Hebrew University. And he asked that if they would give him, you know, the hashish that they had confiscated. And they agreed and he began to work on it. And in the early 1960s, he became the first chemist to isolate THC and CBD. And he understood even then that these substances would come to have medical applications. And he's worked on cannabis his entire career. Mostly his his work focuses on cannabinoids. And by the early 90s, he and his colleagues discovered the endocannabinoid system, which is a complex cell signaling system that regulates a variety of bodily functions in mammals. And this includes appetite, mood, memory, sleep. And it's, it's almost as if the human body produces its own version of THC in order to regulate homeostasis, which bodies require in order to maintain stability. And so he's really a major figure in cannabis research, and he very much helped. And it took, it really took way too long. It took, you know, so many years to break the stigma on cannabis as something legitimate on which to research. His initial research has led to all kinds of successful trials that indicate the medicinal 
value of cannabis for a wide variety of ailments. He's really, you know, really a major figure and his work serves as the basis for, for all cannabis research today. But also, you know, one of the ironies here is that recreational use is not legal in Israel. Nonetheless, Israel is still at the forefront of cannabis research. They've created hundreds of different kinds of strains of medical marijuana that, you know, target specific ailments. They've all undergone clinical trials. Apparently, they also export a lot of medical marijuana. Right. Well, look, let's just come back a bit to the present and in the United States. I mean, obviously, there were all of the scholars back in the late 60s, early 70s, Grinspoon and Zinberg, Andy Weil and others. More recently, there's Julie Holland, who you have in the exhibit. There is Ethan Russo of kind of famed medical marijuana research who sounds Italian, but in fact is Sephardic Jewish. And many Sephardic Jews have names that sound like they're Italian. Mitch Earlywine, a professor at SUNY Albany, whose writing was crucial uh, in the early 2000s in this area. But then there's the political domain here. I was thinking about the fact that if you look at the politicians, I mean, even at the national level, who have been deeply involved in cannabis reform, probably the major champion of marijuana reform going back a decade ago was uh, Barney Frank, you know, Jewish, right? right? And then Earl Blumenauer, who's not Jewish, Morgan steps into his shoes. But if you look at the major marijuana bill coming out of Congress each year and out of the House, it's Jerry Nadler, my congressman on the Upper West Side. And then if you look at on the Senate side, who's the trio leading the marijuana legalization effort? It's Chuck Schumer, the Jewish New York senator who's the majority leader. It's Ron Wyden from Oregon, also Jewish. And it's Cory Booker, who has typically been described as the most Jewish non-Jew in the U.S. (laughs) Senate. But then I look back at a historically And if you look at the early marijuana decriminalization bills in Congress in the 70s, the two sponsors were Ed Koch, then a liberal Jewish congressman in New York who became something of a drug warrior when he became a mayor, and Jacob Javits, the liberal Jewish senator from New York as well. And so, I mean, I, you know, I sometimes worry about even pointing out all these Jewish connections. Am I kind of like right, unleashing something here that people go, oh, my God, federal marijuana legalization is entirely a Jewish conspiracy here. But it's really striking the extent to which it's been playing a very leading role on marijuana reform. And any thoughts about that? Part of this, I think, comes from the traditional Jewish place in society, which is off to the side. And what I mean by that is for thousands of years, and especially in the medieval period, Jews did not have any sort of citizenship on par with anyone else. I mean, and obviously in medieval societies, no one really had anything called citizenship, but they were prohibited from engaging in certain kinds of occupations. They were prohibited from owning land. They were forced into certain kinds of occupations and their opportunities were very much limited. And this is something that occurred for many centuries. And as a result, Jews were really required to scramble to make a living. And that forced them to engage in either black market or gray market activities. And this, to a certain degree, became a Jewish tradition. And because of this, you find Jews getting involved in, let's say, risky new technologies. You can think of things like the early film industry or the early recording industry. People tend to forget that in the late 19th, early 20th century, Jews couldn't enter proper society. You find this tendency for Jews to gear themselves to doing things that are sometimes risky, but also sometimes have a big payoff. So when it comes to something like cannabis, Jews saw this risk. They also, to a certain degree, coming from a different direction, saw this kind of injustice that this substance was illegal when it was clearly not particularly harmful or even beneficial. Additionally, with the advent of the drug war, the sense of justice kicked in even more because not only they, as in the guise of the Yippies or other members of other left-wing organizations, but they also clearly saw that minorities were suffering the most from interdiction during the drug war. That sense of justice that tends to be part of especially secular Jewish culture really kicked in and became part of this equation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's also a moment to talk about when it comes to the money and the politics of this thing. You know, when I think back to 1996, when we did the first medical marijuana initiative, now the person who instigated it was Dennis Perone, not Jewish, you know, an AIDS activist in San Francisco who drafted it. But then I came in in order to raise the money and put together the campaign, the whole thing. And the guy I hired to leave the campaign was Bill Zimmerman, 
Jewish. And the three major donors were George Soros and Peter Lewis, the head of progressive insurance, and George Zimmer, the founder of the Men's Warehouse, all Jewish. So, I mean, essentially, it was, quote unquote, Jewish money. And I was the kind of major donor running the thing. And Bill Zimmerman, who basically led that first medical marijuana initiative and basically the next half dozen that came thereafter. On the other hand, when you look at some of the attacks that were coming directed at especially Soros and me back 25 years ago on that, one of them was A.M. Rosenthal, the Jewish former, you know, executive editor of the New York Times, who was a rabid drug warrior. It was Mitch Rosenthal, Jewish, who was a founder of Phoenix House and radically in support of the drug war. It was Herb Kleber, a professor at Columbia and Yale, who was the deputy drug czar under the first drug czar, William Bennett, right? It was a senator from California, Dianne Feinstein, and more recently, a congresswoman from Florida, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So there's been a healthy dose of Jewishness on the anti marijuana and pro-drug war side as well. Now, their numbers and influence obviously don't compare to the role of Jews on the kind of pro-reform side. But I think we need to point out that it's not all been one-sided in this regard. Sure, of course not. It never is. Obviously, the you know, anti-Semites will, will claim that there's some sort of conspiracy. But you know, there's, there's an expression in Yiddish that says, which means if you open a roll, a Jew will pop out. And what that really means is you could find Jews everywhere when you want them and when you don't want them. So, and it's the same in this matter as well. Jewish drug warriors, there are Jews who are for the legalization of of marijuana. Yeah, no, I guess that's true. Well, just to bring it up right now to the whole marijuana industry that's booming, I was trying to figure out, it would almost make sense that Jews would play a disproportionate role in this because Jews are deeply involved and successful in commerce, disproportionately wealthy relative to the average part of the American population. But I'm wondering if that's fully true. When I look around at some of the biggest companies, I was trying to go through a list of them and I'm seeing, you know, Ben Kohler, Green Thumb. You know, you must have looked into this somewhat. What was your take on that? First of all, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of new companies, and it's impossible to keep track of them. So it's really hard to say. My general perception is that there are a lot of Jews involved in this industry. I would suspect that they're not a majority, and I'm talking currently, but I would say that they're probably a pretty significant minority. I guess could well be. Could well be. Well, Eddie, let me ask you. I mean, this has been fascinating for me. I love the fact that we intersected on this issue here. What do you imagine? I mean, can you imagine doing an episode on Jews and some other element of psychoactive drugs in the future? Or is this going to be it for YIVO exhibits on Jews and psychoactive drugs of any sort? You know, if something comes up, it's always possible. And I will say that when I first broached this idea to a number of people, the first thing out of their mouths was, you got to do psychedelics, I mean, you know, Jews and psychedelics. And I would want to wait for that. I want to silo cannabis because it's something, you know, distinct and I don't want to sort of mix it up with something else. But if I find that, like I did with cannabis, that there is a significant history to this and there's significant activity on the part of Jews, either in the industries or in creating new rituals, then I'm open to anything. I think any kind of culture that people create that's sort of based on their traditions is is fascinating to me. And if I'm able to develop something on Jews and psychedelics, I'd be happy to. Well, Eddie, if you go that way, remember to ask me about the time 20 years ago when Ramdas, otherwise known as Richard Alpert, who had been Timothy Leary's colleague at Harvard, he was doing his Ramdas and Friends gathering at the Omega Institute in New York. It was just a couple of weeks after 9 11 in 2001. And he invited me to join the other Dases, you know, Lama Surya Das and Krishna Das and Ramdas. So I got to be Ethan Das for a week. And it <laughs> turned out that Yom Kippur was in the middle of the week. And so I started ragging on all of them. Like, here we are, probably half the people at this gathering are lapsed Jews, right? And if you think about it, what did Ram Das, Krishna Das, Lama Surya Das all have in common? They all were bar mitzvahed. They all did psychedelics. They all went to India to find their guru. They all came back to America to become a spiritual leaders who had ambivalent relationships, you know, with their Judaism. And then a couple of days later, they're all kind of sheepish about it. And a couple of days later, Ram Das pulls me into his room, gets me, sticks a joint in my mouth. This is when he was smoking 24-7, gets me high. And he says, Ethan, I want you to lead cold Nidre services tonight. 
and for his whole group. <laughs> and so that night, me and Ram Dass and Lama Surya Dass and Mickey Lemley, also Jewish, who was doing a documentary about Ram Dass, got up there and I led a Kol Nidre service at Ram Dass and Friends Gathering back, you know, two weeks after 9-11. It was one of the more remarkable moments of my life, I'll tell you that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. All right, you know what? You're in the exhibit. <laughs> oh, well, Guile, that about, yeah, I'll, get a, I'll get a twofer in that case. But Eddie, listen, I think you did a marvelous job with the exhibit. I'm so glad you Thank did you. it. It was so much fantastic energy and enthusiasm. You put together a great panel when you were there. And so I surely hope that Yivo is going to be doing other exhibits involving Jews and psychoactive drugs. As for this one, it will be still showing at Yivo. That's Y-I-V-O, based at the Center for Jewish History on 16th Street in New York, or just Google Jews and Cannabis. It's going to be showing there through the end of the year. If you're visiting New York or live in New York, I strongly encourage you to check it out. And Eddie, thank you ever so much for being my guest on Psychoactive. Thank you. I had a great time. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Norman Oller, an award-winning German novelist, screenwriter, and journalist who's written a fascinating book called Blitzed, all about the use of methamphetamine and other drugs by Hitler and the German military during World War II. No army in the world had ever done this to, to march for three days and three nights because no human being can stay awake for three days and three nights without an artificial stimulant, but with methamphetamine is actually possible. So the German army used this you know, longer time window of being able to be active to overrun the enemies which um, had to go to sleep, actually. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans... Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Kris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 
20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.